Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Hello and welcome. We're back again with Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley. And I'm Sharon Pierce. And we are looking forward to another great episode today. We have some very special guests in the house that have been with us before. And we're going to continue with our educational and history series with two past AANA presidents, Nancy Marie and Sandy Ouellette. And Sharon, do you want to kind of start this off? Well, you know what? We need to think of a really cool name to name this series. So if any of our listeners out there can come up with something really cool, just shoot Jeremy or myself an email. But this is so special that we need something catchy or that's a great idea. You know, yeah. maybe Nancy and Sandy have some ideas about that, too. They can let us know for Absolutely. sure. I like that. Yeah, I, like that. I think that's great, yeah. too. So today we're going to talk about the evolution of nurse anesthesia education. You know, Jeremy, you and I received some emails whenever we did the podcast with Randy Moore asking why the topic of doctoral education wasn't broached during that particular podcast. And so we took that to heart and we talked to Nancy and Sandy and came up with this whole evolutionary piece or rather they did. We're just bystanders hanging on for the ride. But so I guess we'll go ahead and open it up to you ladies. And so you're on. Well, I think both of us get to talk about something that's really close to our heart, which is nurse anesthesia education. Wait, get out. How many years did you have an education, Nancy? Um, Do I need a calculator? <laughs> She's counting on her fingers, it's folks. It's a lot, folks. Let's put it that way. 50 years. 50, 50 years. years. Oh, my God. That's a, Do y'all keep up with how many students you actually educate? Do you have any idea? Sandy, how many years and how uh, many students? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, most of my life was spent uh, in education. And um, interesting, do we keep up with the students? At the program that I directed for 24 years at Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center, we have pictures of all of our students going back from the first graduate, and they're on, we call it on the wall. So we've got, and you know, so yeah, I could keep up with them, and I can go, and someone will ask me a question every once in a while. I said, well, I've got to go back to the school, and I've got to look at the wall to see where this person graduated from, but it does, uh, it does help a lot. It'd be interesting if y'all calculated how many students that the two of y'all educated figure that out and on one of our next podcasts because I would imagine that exponentially between you guys and then that goes to the next generation I bet we would both be astounded by that how many years for you Sandy well most of my most of my career has been in education and this is my 50th year as a nurse anesthetist Years yeah, yeah. combined of nurse anesthesia education sitting in this room. That's amazing. Wow. Absolutely. That's pretty impressive. And we've survived it. That's really amazing. <laughs> and you're around to tell about it. <laughs> Could write a book. <laughs> okay. To, to start this off, let's just go back historically a little bit. Cindy and I were talking about this before we came. And actually, we were talking about it with Richard Ouellette. But as soon as the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists was formed, which was the original name of the AANA, which thankfully they changed because I don't want to be Nana. Um, <laughs> education was always in the forefront. I think sometimes we think that the clinical arena was the forefront, but it really wasn't. The initial things that the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists moved to the forefront was to organize and the educational piece for mm -hmm. educating nurses to be nurse anesthetists because it was really like, you know, it depended on where someone was, what they were taught, how they were taught, and that sort of thing. So Helen Lamb was in the era of Agatha Hodgins, who started the association, 
and she was the first chair of the education committee. And I didn't realize it, but she was involved in education up until, am I right? Somewhere in the fifties. Yeah. I remember Helen Lamb. Hel yeah. Helen Lamb was the one and she really moved for accreditation. And uh, it took many years after that was her dream, but she wanted that. And because of all she did in education, she's known as the mother of nurse anesthesia education. Alice McGall is known as the mother of nurse anesthesia from Mayo Clinic, but she is the mother of nurse anesthesia education. And I knew Helen Lamb. No way. Oh, no way. Yeah. 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 Tell us, give well, us some insights. Well, good. you know, uh, as a young person, I would go to these meetings and there would be this old lady sitting there. Excuse me, Helen, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> but there would be all these people just flocked around her and they were just trying to extract any word or anything she said from her. And, you know, so obviously she was a hero. And we did uh, have some interactions from time to time. And she was a phenomenal woman. She was married three times. Did you know that? No way. Oh, yeah. Three times? Yeah. And most of the people she married were millionaires. Oh, wow. Good In fact, her. I bet uh, you did not we know. We got the financial <laughs> guy right here. I bet, you did, I bet you did not know that the Symphony Hall in St. Louis is named after her first husband, Walter Powell and Helen Lamb. And just real quick, I know we don't have a lot of time. Oh, no, this is the good, this is good well, stuff. Uh, <laughs> you like know, juice. Yes. Walter Powell and Helen Lamb were very good friends for many, many years before they got married. And they were both figure skating fanatics. You know, when I knew Helen Lamb, I would have never been able to picture her then or now on ice skates. But anyway, there she was, figure skating. So Walter Powell, I don't know if you remember in the early 60s at one of the, uh, the Olympics, we lost our whole figure skating team in a crash in the early 60s. And Helen Lamb and Walter Powell were, uh, well, Walter Powell was on that plane and he died with that team. He was going to the Olympics as a judge. Helen Lamb was supposed to have gone with him and she was unable to because she had work commitments, but she was going to join him in a few days. And so that's the only way that Helen Lamb survived. But there's a book that was just published fairly recently, Indelible Journey. And it's a book about that whole team, everything about them. And do you know, Dick and I bought a copy of that. And in several places, there is uh, Helen Lamb, this mentioned, our mother of nurse anesthesia. So she married him, and then there was another very wealthy man she married. And then the last person she married, his name is Jack Frost. And interestingly enough, he was 25 years younger than oh, Helen. Right, 25 Helen. years younger than right. Helen. <laughs> and um, But they were both very happy. I remember when he would bring her to the a and meeting as she really got more into advanced age, and he was very caring of her. He was very protective of her. And she was very happy. And so, he was the rich one. Yeah. He was the rich yes. one <laughs> and the younger rich. one. They were all rich. Oh, my <laughs> God. She is now my hero. Yeah. And on another note, Agatha, we have awards within the AANA. We have the Agatha Hodgson Award and we have the Helen Lamb Awards. And both of them are the most prestigious awards that the AANA offers. And I believe both of these ladies have won both of these awards in the wow. past. So we wow. have Agatha and Helen winners sitting in here, too, as if you weren't old enough. Jeremy. I'll tell you what, I, I am in awe. And now, since Helen's going to be my hero. <laughs> Sorry, Pierce. Helen was a little petite lady. Mm -hmm. and she was, so I could see her figure skating. Wow. So, she was a little petite lady. Interesting. But Love going that. Back to our uh, I to know. Our back to the, the good tape, stuff here. It was embedded in the 1933 bylaws of the NANA to develop educational standards and techniques in administration of drugs. And of course, Helen Lamb, as education chair, was put in charge of this. And so by 1934, which was a year later, they had in place for education of nurse anesthetists a detailed curriculum outline, just an outline, uh, guidelines for how to operate a school, not an accrediting body, but, and they had begun to compile a list of schools that were in the United States and to establish 
to establish, but not, not there yet, a way of inspecting the schools, which ultimately would lead to the accreditation process. And so in 1945, we've gone about 11 years now, the Essentials of an Acceptable School of Nurse Anesthesiology for Graduate Registered Nurse Anesthetist was put forth by the Education Committee of the AANA. And I'll say one more thing, and I just want to ask Sandy why this couldn't have been the way it was for us. You know, initially, what these essentials called for was that the schools had to be six months long, mm -hmm. preferably a year. The recorded classroom hours of instruction was only 95. <laughs> the recorded hours of operating instruction was 18. Then I guess you would kind of turn loose to get your case numbers. I don't know. But you only had to have 325 cases. And 20 had to be OB. 24 could be dental. And 25 could be spinal and local. So I go back and think, Sandy, remember how hard we had to fight to get regional anesthesia for our students not that many years ago. Yeah, right. And yet here in the initial essentials, the nurse anesthetists were being taught to do spinals and locals. Huh. Well, and, and I'm drawn to that uh, point, too, that the length of the course could be as little as six months way back there when they started. You know, when I attended the program, and Nancy, you went to the same program, at that time, you could graduate in 18 months, but we insisted at Wake Forest that it be 24 months even then. And um, it was just like, see one, do one, teach one, you know. We had some good class under our mentor and director, Helen Voss. She was a phenomenal teacher. But at the same time, we sort of, we had our instructors. Remember, there were just a few instructors in the operating room, and the students ran the OR with Adidact. So you talk about cost-effective service. We were it. And third six-month student was supervised, first six-month student on OB. And I remember in those days, we didn't intubate anyone, and they were all put to sleep. General anesthesia with cyclopropane or ethylene, and no endotracheal tube, that was the kiss of death. And can you imagine? I can't believe that the population, we looked it up today, Forsyth County in Winston-Salem is as large as it is with those types of techniques. Right. Wow. Plus, we had an OB obstetrician who so sedated her patients that they didn't even know that they had had a baby for five days. And all of her babies came out very sedate, and there we were, you know, a first six-month student with a third six-month student trying to, to resuscitate to get a baby to cry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was the reason I don't like OB, if you want to know the truth, that's why I don't well, like it. Yeah. And Nancy, I know a lot of mothers wish that they didn't know for the first five days they had a baby. You know? Well, yeah, well, let me tell you something. She also insisted that they breastfeed. <laughs> Have you ever tried to get a woman who is sedate and asleep and cannot be awakened to breastfeed a baby. I think that would be against the law for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would put you in jail now. <laughs> well, they were the good old days, weren't they, Nancy? So uh, so what changed as we've moved along, and how did we get involved? Well, of course, there always has to be controversy and conflict. But before we get to that, in 1950, at the 17th annual AANA meeting, the memberships unanimously, if you can believe that, unanimously voted to establish an accrediting process. Now, keep in mind, this is not the Council on Accreditation. This is an accrediting process. Okay. And that, 1950. The, yes. Okay. And membership actually increased the dues by $20. That was a lot of money. Back and then. $5 of that $20 went to the new accrediting program. And again, Helen Lamb is all involved in this. The Council on Accred was not established until 1975. And this is where the controversy comes in. At that point in time, the U.S. Office of Education mandated a structural change in how organizations could be involved in accreditation. Because, see, up until this time, the AANA was accrediting programs. The organization. The organization was okay. accrediting programs. And actually, the first on-site visit 
very first one that was ever done mm -hmm. by the ANA was at Ravenswood Hospital School of Nurse Anesthesia in Chicago. Okay. So what happened was two things happened. There was a statement or a policy, I'm not sure which it was, that came out that anesthesiologists should be involved, have greater involvement in nurse anesthesia education. And where did that come from? Do either of you know? It came from the American Society of Anesthesiologists. It came from the ASA. Because they challenged, mm -hmm. they were challenging mm -hmm. our ability to, to do teach. these things with the new criteria mm -hmm. by the U.S. Office of Education. They also started their own organization for nurse anesthetists and CRNAs that were going to be an accrediting body if they could get it passed by the Office of Education. And Sandy, I'm blocking. What was the name of that? I know it was faculty something. I've sort of got a block on it right now as well. So but they what, wanted to accredit. No, no. Or no, they no. wanted to. They wanted help. to have a, another body that would basically replace the assembly school faculty, mm -hmm. remember? Yes, right. the but they wanted faculty. it very controlled. And in their body, each school would have one nurse anesthetist and one anesthesiologist as a membership in this group. And so that was going on all at the same time when the criteria national was being changed for recognition through the crediting process. And that was a real big fight. Do you remember, Nancy? Yeah, it was really a serious challenge to the profession, to be very honest with you. It and that's when the ASA challenged the AANA, because this goes back to a lot of the reasons why we have a separate credentialing mm -hmm. yeah and accrediting bodies. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure that everybody yeah. understands that. And we're very clear about that because I know whenever, and this is a whole other podcast, but looking at CPC and everything, a lot of people did not understand that the beginnings of that whole process started in 1975, right? Whenever they it, challenged. It, it did, but it didn't really start with their challenge. What started it was that the Office of Education mm -hmm. changed how an organization in the, to be recognized by the Office of Education. Okay. There are standards that you have to meet. Right. So they changed their standards so that the association had to give autonomy to an accrediting body in decision making. So it could not be the AANA accrediting programs anymore. Okay. And Nancy, I, I think also talking about that, correct me if I'm wrong, they were saying the ANA cannot be all things to all people. They cannot be the membership organization, the certifying organization, the accrediting organization, and on and on we go. But you well, just said- we using the American Medical Association model? <laughs> <laughs> we may have, but at the same time, I think one thing to be clear is this word autonomy is thrown around a whole lot and it's a way to gain unnecessary power. It says that you will be autonomous in decision-making. That will be bylaws. That will be budget. It does not mean you have to be autonomously separated mm -hmm. from the parent body, your only client that you are, um, are serving. And again, Sharon, that is certainly a topic for another sure. day because Absolutely. it's a hot topic now, as you well know, and mm -hmm. Nancy knows. And this was a big issue. And like both of us have said, it did finally result in the establishment of three, what we used to call semi-autonomous councils. Right. But even by saying semi-autonomous, it still meant that the organization could not in any way interfere with the decision-making of the council. For example, with the council on a cred, the council on a cred, had to make the decisions that, you know, the ED of the AANA, no one else could come in the room and influence your decision making. It did not mean that the council couldn't be financially subsidized or housed in the same building or any of that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But you did have to be a separate decision making body. With the your board own of board of directors, your own bylaws. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And Essie, do you remember those days when the ASA challenged us before the U.S. Office of Education? And do you remember Celestine Harrigan? Mm -hmm. She was a, a very, very strong nurse anesthetist from 
Detroit, wasn't it? She was from Wayne State, and she presented our part of the testimony to the U.S. Office of Education. And remember that Helen Voss would get her big car out in front of the school, and we would all be expected to get in it. We would ride with her all the way to Washington, D.C., and we would be there then for that testimony. And wasn't it amazing? Because Celestine was always prepared. And I can remember just observing that as a very young anesthetist, because I graduated in 1969, this was 1975. I didn't know too much about anything, but I remembered that the physicians were never prepared for those testimonies. They absolutely were never prepared. And Celestine was prepared to the hilt, and also our gun had got her blueprint in mind, which would be the separate councils, and it just went from there. Is that right, Nancy? Do you remember those rides? Did you I, ever go I there? I remember that Ford Torino very <laughs> specifically. It was one of the biggest cars I've ever seen in my life, and I could—I was always amazed at how many people she could put in it. <laughs> but when she said, I'll be in the parking lot if you would like to go, you knew you better be in that parking lot. Okay. But I just found the name of the competing, and it does say competing accrediting organization. It was called the Faculty of Nurse Anesthesia Schools. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And it would, like Sandy said, it would have one anesthesiologist and one CRNA from every school in the United States. And of course, they were challenging us because at that time, the organization was doing the accreditation and they were recognized. We got recognition from the Department of Education in 1955. Mm -hmm. And so we were fighting to keep our recognition. Of course, it takes time to make those types of major changes in organization. In fact, it was so critical that our gun, and I hope I'm not saying this wrong, but this is what I was told. She was loaned to the AANA to help fix this problem by the Army, and she at the time was stationed in Germany. Mm -hmm. So she came to Chicago, and she spearheaded all of this structure about the councils and her helpers were Ruth Satterfield, Mary Cabanero, am I saying that right, Sandy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Ed Clyde. So it was major. It was really major. But we did get our recognition. Three councils were formed, which was the Council on Accredited, the Council on Accreditation for and the students who are listening. That was and recertification, recertification was 1978. Yeah. Okay. But essentially, mm -hmm. we had those three councils. And then down the line, which didn't have any really that a specific impact on the school was a council on public interest, which of course I remember that. was dissolved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people were beginning to see us more attention. Remember Nancy was given to um, our accreditation that now may be the time to move from those hospital based diploma programs into higher education. And in fact, there had been both programs at a bachelor's level and a master's level. Remember Sister Mary Arthur Schramm started the first bachelor's program in nurse anesthesia at Mount Marty College in Yankton, South Dakota. Then Joyce Kelly, who uh, established the first master of science in nurse anesthesia from Kaiser Permanente in California, in Long Beach, California. But that was, it was not required during those times. So, you know, a few programs were coming up and offering a university-based education, but, but not many. But in the late 70s, and remember that was not too long after this challenge in, of accreditation, the members that were attending the assembly school faculty voted to accept the concept of bachelor's education for the professional nurse. And what that meant was they were setting the stage, I think, so that we would be able to move then into master's programs somewhere in the future. And that was in the early 80s, Nancy, you remember? And we were saying that for a period of time, if we were accepting a student that had an associate degree and not a bachelor's degree, then um, they could do some bridge courses. They call it bridge courses today. And we could consider, but that didn't last long. Before long, 
it was mandatory that they have a bachelor's degree. And remember, it did not have to be in nursing. It could be a bachelor's degree. You and I, neither one, uh, of course, we were faculty then, but we would have been qualified if it were in nursing because we have bachelor's degrees outside of nursing in biology. But anyway, it didn't have to be in nursing, but it had to be a bachelor's degree. This and actually affected me because I graduated from nursing yep. school in 84 from an ADN mm -hmm. program. And I came and talked to you. I was 19 years old when I came to talk to you, Sandy, because my husband worked for a beach band called the Embers, and they played at a meeting called the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Mm -hmm. And my husband met your first husband, mm -hmm. Chow, mm -hmm. and they sat talking and Pierce, Pierce talking. Yeah, Pierce talking, <laughs> right? So he talked to Chow and Chow. You didn't know Chow, <laughs> but Chow was quite the talker himself. And they got to talking and Chow said, well, my wife is the director of an anesthesia program. And so I went to see Sandy at that time, had my application, talked to her, but then they come up with this BSN stuff, and I had yeah. to go back to school. Was there a lot of backlash at the time? I mean, you know, as we talk about now moving from master's to doctorate, I mean, of course, Good there was question. a lot of backlash about that. At but that I point in time, did you get a lot I re of I remember Nancy and I, we were both diploma graduates. We did not have a degree at all. And in those years, we were both involved in education. I've forgotten exactly what position we were when all of this began to move. We had recognized that we were going to have to get a bachelor's degree and we worked all day. So there was a program offered at Guilford College in biology and we worked all day long and we drove to Greensboro and we then had classes and we uh, earned our bachelor's degree from Guilford College. Remember that Nancy? Remember that night we were centrifuging those cells at 12 o'clock in the morning and I had to be back <laughs> in the OR to administer anesthesia for a heart case the next day you guys go to and how angry I was. Do you remember <laughs> the day that we were doing something in biology and I ate the specimens? I was so hungry. Oh, wow. It was a pear <laughs> and an apple. Do you remember that? Nancy, maybe you can comment on that. I, and don't don't say the language I use uh, on uh, the And I won't say that the professor was standing behind you when you said those words <laughs> either. But, <laughs> she did. She wow. ate. She ate the potato and the <laughs> apple. Because um, you hadn't eaten all day in the OR either. <laughs> and the other thing about Sandy and being in school with her was she would leave me to do the lab assignment. Miss Socialite. I was talking she to was, everybody. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I go, know how she likes all this biology. She <laughs> would go around and talk to everybody. And then she would come back and tell me I was doing it wrong. Oh, well, some things have never changed. But I wasn't, okay? And no, there was no Starbucks. There was there was nowhere to get anything. I don't Jesus. even think there Where was, was a, Facebook a when we machine. needed it. Oh, wow. <laughs> but one thing you were asking about conflict, I don't remember any uh, really opposition in the Assembly of School faculty at that time or in at the ANA business meeting. But one thing that was different as it was when we moved to the master's degree. A lot of the faculty wasn't prepared. And so like Sandy said, they gave us a period of time where if you had a certificate in nursing or an ADN, you could take bridge courses mm -hmm. so that you really didn't have to be baccalaureate prepared for a period of years, not a lot of years, but you did have more education mm -hmm. than just with your diploma or your ADN. And so that kind of, I think that kind of smoothed the waters. I think if it had been like overnight, you know, all students have got to have a baccalaureate and we don't know how you're going to get prepared for it, but you mm -hmm. better do it. So we didn't really hear a lot, you know, and like when moving to the master's degree, you know, we also had some years to get ready for faculty to get ready. And I think, as we said, the, the whole preparation for that, as you said, was a plan to have all nurse anesthesia educational programs post-baccalaureate by 1986. And so, as you mentioned, Nancy, that was moving us right on into the master's level. And we had just earned our bachelor's. So and so if we, if, back? yes, then we, then, and I remember my 
not my husband then, but my husband now, long range planning at ANA and he called and we were just chatting and he was so excited. He said, I can foresee a day that all of our graduates will graduate with a master's degree. And all I could see is I didn't have one. I just had a bachelor's degree. And so I told him I could see the handwriting on the wall. And that is, I was still going to be in school when I was 65, getting my first social security check. And I wanted to make sure that if I was in school, Sharon, you need to keep this in mind too. You ought to really make sure you're going to get homecoming queen. If you're going that long, you know, you need to really make sure you get something else out of it besides, you know, your doctorate or whatever. Go for homecoming queen at there Yale. There you go. I'm sure, I'm sure what, Yale what she isn't telling you. with a social security check and the, and the ground. Is we took Sandy kicking and screaming through her master's degree now where did y'all get your master's degree at the same place or uh -huh. no she went to uncg and i went to wake forest okay so we didn't go to the same place ah so you didn't have to do her labs for her there whatever uh -uh. <laughs> you learned the first time smart woman <laughs> yeah i can tell you i did not want to do that believe With me i lived it every day right <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was that everyone would be graduating, remember Nancy, with a master's degree by 1994. And the plan was in motion and it happened, but it didn't happen until 1998. So everyone that's graduated from our program since 1998, the entry level is the master's. And wouldn't you think we'd be just satisfied with that? But oh no, not this particular We profession. want more. <laughs> yeah, we want more. And we want everybody else to have to go through the pain too, Sharon, that you are feeling right oh now as you're working gosh. on your doctorate <laughs> and yes. working all day long. Yes, yes, exactly. All right. So we're up to master's level. Yeah. So I know I went to Wake Forest and I graduated in 92 and we were already master's level at Wake Forest in 92. I'm going to let Sandy take over for a little while and then I'll interrupt. But she was on the task force for doctoral preparation. And what year was that task force? That 2005, around yeah, in there. Around in there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she'll make the point very clear that this decision to move to the clinical doctorate didn't come from the AANA. So, right. do you think that it would have gotten there on its own? I know that this was put forth by the American College of Nursing, right? Collegiate AACM. Nursing, American yeah. Association of yeah. Colleges of Nursing. Um, and they wanted all APRNs to go to the mm -hmm. doctorate level, and that was their recommendation, what, by 2015? Mm -hmm. Okay. So it didn't come from us, but do you think that eventually the AANA would have come to that of their own accord? I mean, they seem very forward-thinking and you know, we went from the BSN to the MSN or baccalaureate to master's, not necessarily that, but. There was I, much more discussion mm -hmm. about going to the clinical doctorate at meetings and at forums and that sort of thing than moving to the master's degree. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot more discussion and a lot of it really had to do with at the time that the deans came out with this, there were very, very few, and I mean very few, program directors that had a doctoral degree mm -hmm. of any kind, clinical doctorate or PhD or EDD. And so that was a real concern. And I think the other concern was, and one that personally I worried about, was that there would be a lot of opposition from the physicians and we would see a real proliferation of AA programs mm -hmm. because I really don't foresee as long as the AA or as controlled as they are by the anesthesiologists in moving to a clinical doctorate. I could be very wrong about that. But so that was a concern. So there were more concerns. Right. So not, I, I, not so much opposition as concerns right things we've got to face and we've got to have decisions i hear what you're saying and i had the same concerns now as i sit here going back getting my doctorate but that if i was young 
and looking at going to school, would I go and be an AA or would I go and be a nurse anesthetist with a doctorate? It's a longer process, obviously. So if I had to choose without knowing all the other things that I couldn't practice autonomously, independently or anything, you know, some people could choose the wrong path. Yeah. And, you know, getting to uh, back to what Nancy said, yes, we uh, on the task force expected some physician pushback. And it was interesting to me that as all this evolved, a number of uh, anesthesiologists really didn't care if you graduated people with the research PhD. What they didn't want was the DNP because that's a practice doctorate and an MD is a practice doctorate. So both would have a practice doctorate at that point. And what I worried about the most, and certainly I shared Nancy's concern there, but I worry about dilution and still worry about dilution of the curriculum. Once we get really housed in universities, those program directors are going to have to really fight to make sure that we have the clinical hours and the anesthesia content that we can continue to educate and graduate competent practitioners. Because I said way back when, when we were looking at the bachelors and then the masters, we can graduate people with a PhD. If they cannot maintain an airway, they're not going to have a job past Monday morning because we are paid and hired to do that job not the doctorate. But if I could regress a little bit, as Nancy said, in the early 2000s, I don't know what was going through the minds of these academic deans, but you know, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, AACN, is comprised mostly of Department of Nursing collegiately deans and associate deans mm -hmm. and faculty. Well, kind of, I do know what was going through their head. It's like having the fox in the hen house. They want a new it, building. They want, to, they want, to, <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, but it, might, you're might absolutely right, Nancy. This is where it came from. And since half of our programs in the United States are housed within departments of nursing at the master's level, it could not be ignored. And so, it was about 2005 that there was an invitational summit of nurse anesthetists called, and I did attend that. Frank Mazeroski was president at the time, and he called that to discuss future steps. And following that, it was determined it's something that we had to look at. And so between um, Brian Thorson, president of ANA, and Terry Wicks, it was sort of occurring when they were changing positions there was a, a doctoral task force appointed, and um, Denise Martin Sheridan and I were asked to chair it, and Betty Horton was the administrative staff manager of it, and everyone on that task force was CRNAs. It was not like the commission, which we had people that were CRNAs and people that weren't, but they were all CRNAs, and the charge from the board of directors was to look at various options for doctoral preparation of nurse anesthetists that we can consider for the board. So they wanted us to really develop four options and timetables when this could be done. So we eventually did that. But early on after we met, we developed an interim position statement and we released that in February of 2006. And it, it says that ANA encourages professional development for nurse anesthetists up to the doctoral level. However, evidence currently does not support mandatory clinical doctoral degrees for entry into nurse anesthesia practice. The ANA will make a decision on this matter following stakeholder input, data collection and analysis, and a thorough assessment of the potential impact that this will have not only on our profession, but also on the public we serve. And we did that. We gathered all the information, we really analyzed it, and then we, we forwarded those four options to the AANA board. And the one the board selected was, there will be doctoral entry for all of our graduates in the year 2025. Well, AACN was mandating 2015. Why was that? Well, it took us approximately 20 years to go from diploma bachelor's to a master's. And at the time the task force was meeting, as Nancy just said, only 1.2% of all of our CRNAs had a doctoral degree, and that included JDs, 
that included attorneys. So we didn't have the faculty to go there. And so we knew it would be just about a 20 year process. And boy, that time has really flown by, hadn't it? Because very soon over at Wake Forest, I assume they have an optional doctor, doctoral program now, a DNP program. But by 2022, all students admitted into programs at 2022 will have to graduate in 2025 with a doctorate because you have to have it longer and more content than you have at a master's. And if a program is at two years, which ours is 24 months, some of them are longer than that at a master's level. They were uh, 30 months, 32 months and longer, but ours will be uh, three years in length. And so the day is here. Uh, by 2025, it'll be doctoral education for all. Yeah, and actually, um, I think I told Sharon this, but my daughter, who's at UNCG in the nursing program, is considering being a nurse anesthetist, and she's just going to not be able to squeak in. She's going to have to get the DMP as well. So uh, we'll pay for that extra year and uh, mm -hmm. go from there. I know you're getting ready to wrap this up, mm -hmm. but Sandy and I missed a big portion that really needs to go here. And we will try to make it as, I'll make her make it as short as possible. Let's see how that works out. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to do with the Education Commission and the drop in the number of schools. Remember all of that, Sandy? You should, Vividly. you chaired the commission. <laughs> but that was a really important, another big problem that education faced relative to being able to maintain the profession. So, mm -hmm. Sandy, I'm going to let you start it off and I'll add to it, okay? Okay. Well, you know, you've got to look again at where we were. We uh, were all excited. We were doing our victory laps because President Reagan had just signed direct reimbursement under Part B Medicare for the nurse anesthetists. We had started that process about 1982 and 83. This was 86. By 1989, 60 nurse anesthesia programs had closed between 1982 and 1989. And instead of graduating around 1,200 students a year, we were graduating less than 600 students a year. And um, its lowest point occurred the year I was ANA president. My husband, Dick Willett, Richard Willett, came along for the second time as uh, president of the ANA. And um, at that time, his only real focus was to appoint the National Commission on Nurse Anesthesia Education, which he asked me to chair. It was uh, involved with many, many uh, different specialists and uh, nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists and economists and so on, deans. deans of schools of nursing. All the stakeholders came to the table. Yes, yeah, so thank you, Sharon. But anyway, they came to the table and we were trying to... Um, figure out what we needed to do. And we decided we did not need 142 programs again. We need around 100 programs. And I think today we have about 120. But we need multiple, multiple, multiple clinical sites because, you know, there were many reasons given for the closure of these programs. But the bottom line was that it was a physician way to get rid of the competitor. And they could call it what they want, but that's exactly what was happening. And so uh, with that in mind, we said we need a lot of clinical sites, so it'll be very hard, you know, to close with all the contracts. We want to get into universities. We have clinical sites. We're going to get big. And it worked because now we have around 120 programs today with about 1,800 clinical sites. And at the time in 1989, each program had one clinical site or maybe two like we did. they were housed in. Yes, but it was a very, very dangerous time. That came very close to annihilating uh, this profession. Another thing that came out of that, that is very important to mention too, is that that was also when we got the federal government interested in the fact that we had so few schools. And so nurse anesthesia traineeship money came out oh, of that. Okay. As well as there was also money appropriated at that time to help faculty become masters prepared or doctorally prepared, whichever, you know, because see, it happened before we, we were trying to get to the master's degree during that period of time as well. So here we've got schools closing and we're trying to develop clinical sites, but at the same time, program directors are trying to get up to the level that they needed to 
be in order to bring their program to the master's degree. So a lot of nice things that came out of the Education Commission, but those two also were very important. And I'm not really sure there's a lot of money available or if any money is available now for development of faculty. But the traineeship money is still is right. still there. We still lobby for that every and, year uh, whenever we go to uh, so, uh, um, the capital. You know, that was certainly a movement of the commission as well. And also the commission lives on because during opening ceremonies at every ANA annual meeting, faculty will be recognized. We have the program director of the year. Mm -hmm. We have the clinical instructor of the year. We have the didactic instructor of the year. And all of these were recommendations that came from the commission. And all of that's available, the commission report. We had uh, nine to 11 months to get that finalized. And uh, we requested to implement this a budget of $3 million. Dick was president then. I thought he was going to choke, but we did get what we needed and it entailed having some full-time additional staff individuals in the office. And the commission was very active from 1990 to 1994 and it tended to turn around. By then, ANAs had other issues that they needed to address. So we began to back away from that because we were going in a good direction in terms of numbers of graduates in schools. And today, just to show you the difference, less than 600 in 1989 and somewhere around 2,200, 2,300 graduates per year mm -hmm. right now that we're in. You know, and, and when we start to see those changes, there's a tendency for some of our clinicians, professionals, to say we're training too many, we're educating too many. You know, my, my thought has always been, we will not educate too many. Our biggest danger is educating too few because there will be, there's another provider in the wing and it would not take much to really ramp that up with a lot more schools. And right now I believe that the anesthesia assistants can work in 17 states and, About and that could schools. change. Yep. If the need changes and we can't fill it, where they can work will change, mark my word. And getting back to what Nancy's, uh, what Sharon said, would we have done it? I think we would have been at the doctoral level, but I believe it would have taken longer. We didn't have that stimulus. Mm -hmm. We would have gotten there without a doubt because we're not going to be left behind. And just to show you where we were in North Carolina at the time that the Education Commission started, we had had a school in Asheville. We had had a school at Duke. Now, Duke's, it closed earlier than mm -hmm. this. And Watts. And Watts. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, at the time the Education Committee was appointed, left in North Carolina was the school in Charlotte, the one at Wake Forest, and the one at Durham Regional. Mm -hmm. But it was going to close. So, we had had, at one point in time, had a maximum of five schools, we're down to three, going to two. So the Raleigh School, well, we got money from the um, federal government because of the Education Commission to move to UNCG, to move what is now the Wake Forest Program to UNCG. We got a $600,000 mm -hmm. federal grant, mm -hmm. didn't we? Oh, mm -hmm. was that sweet? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the school in Raleigh, the one at East Carolina, the program at Duke, because Durham Regional did close. Right as well as Western Carolina, all of that really came from that push during the decline in our programs. So I guess the question on the table now, are either of you going to go back and get your doctorate? <laughs> I, I there, know what Sandy's going to say. I know, Not no, but. <laughs> no, you know, Sharon, I, I don't think that's going to be in my future. However, I feel pretty good, and I was telling Nancy the other day, you know, they have these ketamine clinics now for people with depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's a sub-therapeutic dose of ketamine, and I can see these people all in their lounge chairs, and you're just giving them a little bit. I told Nancy, I think we could do that, you know. We're not too old to do that. I might be your first patient <laughs> trying so, to go back to school. So, uh, a little I don't depressed. know about Nancy, but no, I've, I've, oh, I've come on. been tell there, done that. Tell your story. And I, I told uh, my husband, we, we almost went back and worked on our uh, doctorate at Case Western University, 
with Joyce Fitzpatrick, a very well-known dean, very strong, and she would come to ANA meetings. And this must have been discussed at a cocktail party. But she told us that, you know, <laughs> that we need to get on board with this DNP. She said, you could come to our program and, you know, you're going to uh, just take a few courses and you'll have your your doctorate. And I said, well, that sounds good. So we looked into it. Well, she's got to tell the rest of her faculty that neither Dick or I had a degree in nursing at all. We have biology and both of us have master's degrees in education. Well, we then found out through the faculty, we're going to have to take bridge courses, we're going to have to do this and that. And when I was looking at all this and the cost, I finally told Dick, my husband, you can do it if you want to. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to get the best facelift that can be bought for money here in the United States. And um, so neither one of us did it. And, uh, so, but it was very the interesting. Facelift but, I, the- but I did, I did go through the interview and um, it was interesting at the end of the interview, telephone interview. Mm-hmm. The nice professor said, well, this interview is over and I thank you very much. Now let's chat a minute. And she said, I, your CV is here. And I was, You've been involved in many, many things. If I could give you the best advice I have, I would suggest that you take a cooking class. <laughs> and so I thought, more fun, I thought you go, girl. I like you. That's kind of what I'm going to do. <laughs> all right, Nancy, you're up. Well, actually, I did all the coursework mm-hmm. for very sinister reasons that were beyond my control. I did not finish the dissertation. Uh if uh, North Carolina State would come to me today and say, okay, if you want to finish your dissertation, you can, I probably would say yes. I bet you would. But let me teach you about EndNote, the bane of my existence. <laughs> but um, I don't think they're going to do that. But I probably would. I've got plenty of time to do it now. Hmm. Maybe you need to come to Yale with me. <laughs> No, <laughs> I've done all of that. I'm not going to go do that coursework again. Um, oh, my uh, goodness. Well, thank you, ladies, for joining us again. Just so today. you know, I want to tell you, it was at a cocktail party that she talked to um, oh, about this. Okay. It was. Okay. Yeah, yeah it was. Understood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's there's been some cocktails that's gotten me to say some things that I was going to do or that. do something. Yeah. You know, well, we all partake. Yeah. So, but we appreciate you ladies coming and joining us again today to talk to us about the history of nurse anesthesia education. And how was your education today, Jeremy? I'll tell you what, I am drinking from a fire hose right now, Sherry. <laughs> I know. I saw you scribbling all those notes over there. Stuff. You know, being here for 23 years and doing what I do and just listening to you and learning that is very interesting. Thank you guys for being here. So I guess that will be all for us today. So this is Sharon Pierce. And Jeremy Stanley. We're signing off. Thank you. Coming up on a future episode of Beyond the Mask. This is Mike McKinnon. I look forward to talking to you about anesthesiologist assistants, their history, their present, and their future, and how they impact CRNAs. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts.